All right, if you would take your Bibles and turn with me tonight to the Gospel of John. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are Gospels because they tell the Gospel, the story of Jesus' life, the history of Jesus' life, and a great deal of that focus is on his death and burial and resurrection. Typically, when we talk about Gospels, and if you do any reading with depth about the Gospels, you'll see them grouped into two categories. You'll see the language of the synoptic Gospels, which just means same Gospels. And the synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they're called synoptic Gospels because they have so much similarity. In fact, uh, Luke is borrowing from Matthew, and Matthew is borrowing from both Mark and Luke. There's a lot of shared material within those three Gospels. But the Gospel of John stands alone. It's a different kind of Gospel. Now, obviously, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are writing in order to communicate the story of Jesus so that some believe. But there is an overt agenda in the Gospel of John where there is some degree of concern with chronology and uh, historical detail in Gospels like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John's agenda is different. His concern is not with an orderly account of Jesus' life or even something that we might regard as history, although the events of the Gospel of John are historical. John's agenda is theological. John writes specifically so that those who read might believe. And if you need further evidence that that's indeed the agenda of John, you need to look no further than the Gospel of John. As the book winds down in chapter 20 and verse number th uh, chapter 20 and verse 30, John writes, "These are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in His name." So John, under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, seems to be selecting those episodes from Jesus's life. That, that are tailored such to, to convince and to convict and to call and to convert. John's agenda is that we would hear and make observations about the life of Jesus that would compel us to repent of our sin and believe in Jesus for the salvation of our soul. That's apparent in a number of ways. The telling of Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, that leader among the Pharisees in John chapter 3, where Jesus insists that except you be born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again. Followed by that great declaration in verse 16 of the same chapter that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. The, the gospel of John is peppered with examples of, of Jesus calling us unto himself in saving faith. Now, we try to look at, in this overview series, a way of structuring or organizing our thoughts in whatever book it is that we're considering on that given night. We provide some kind of outline. And there are a variety of ways that we might outline the Gospel of John. There, there's a, a, an approach that's pretty common and relatively popular that divides the gospel, uh, gospel of John into two books, and they'll refer to them as the book of signs and the book of the passion. Now, they're not suggesting that there are two authors here. There's nothing that's unbiblical being suggested in that. It's just an effort at sort of dividing the material of John in such a way that it can be better understood or digested. 
The problem with that, and you're going to see this in our time together tonight, is that the signs and the passion of crucified and being raised from the grave, that week of Jesus' life is referred to as the Passion Week. Those things begin to overlap at a certain point in the Gospel of John. You can take a more traditional approach to outlining and just look at major themes and topics and go through the book. That outline would be incredibly detailed and more than anyone would ever commit to memory and probably so detailed that it wouldn't be very helpful for us in digesting the material in the Gospel of John. But there are a couple of features in the Gospel of John that I think observing can help us to sort of put some handles on the passage so that we're able to maneuver through and and, uh, get accustomed to the way John is teaching here in the book. The number seven you're familiar with being commonly used to be representative of perfection or righteousness in some way in the Bible. And and so in the Gospel of John, it seems that by design, John has organized the telling of Jesus' life such that there are seven signs or miracles that are presented in the Gospel of John. And there are seven statements from Jesus where he makes the declaration, I am. For instance, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the sheep gate. I am the good shepherd. I am, I am, I am. And that may seem like Jesus is merely drawing on some illustration or using a metaphor to demonstrate how he's at work on behalf of his people. And that is true. But there is so much more to that. And you need only read the Gospel of John closely to see the significance of those I am statements. Jesus is in conversation at one point in the Gospel of John with the Pharisees and he merely says, I am. In the Greek text, it's just one little word, and it's just four letters, and that's all he says. And the Pharisees are immediately provoked at what Jesus says because they understand in a way that perhaps eludes us the significance of those few little letters. That I am is born out of the communication that happens between Moses and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the burning bush. We made reference to this this past Sunday in our look at Hebrews chapter 3. At the burning bush, Moses turns aside and enters into a conversation with God, during which time God calls Moses to himself in a special role with special responsibilities to serve as leader over the nation of Israel, but to serve also at a critical time in Israel's history when he's calling an enslaved people out of their slavery, out of their bondage, redeeming a people all his own, that they might abide in the promised land and worship him and him alone. Moses is reluctant. You perhaps remember the story. He says, I'm I'm not a good speaker. And God says, I'm aware I gave you the mouth that you have and I made the tongue that you have. We'll take care of all that. But as Moses presses in his reluctance, he asks, who am I even going to tell him sent me? If I go back and I tell people that I've heard God speak from a burning bush, they're going to think I'm a schizophrenic or something, right? And God says to Moses, you tell them, I am sent you. God's self-identification is, I am. And what we have, the language that's used for God in the Old Testament in many ways grows out of that I am language of Exodus chapter 3. 
Now, every Jew understood full well the significance of that statement. That when Jesus is saying, I am the good shepherd, he's saying more than I'm just provider and protector of my people. He's saying more than I'm I'm a shepherd that's concerned with the well-being of the sheep under my care. He's saying, I am the God who is provider and protector and concerned with the well-being of the sheep that are under my care. Now, that, we miss that sometimes. But there is power, there is oomph in what Jesus says when he says anything that begins with, I am. Now, we're going to have to read quickly. And, and you're going to have to listen quickly for us to move through some of these. And if we get cut short, then we just get cut short. But I want us to observe as many as we can of the seven signs or seven miracles in the Gospel of John and the seven I am statements that are featured here in the Gospel of John as well. And as we get sort of in the middle, you'll see that they begin to overlap a little bit and we'll identify those as they come. Now in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, Jesus performs the miracles that Baptists have been wrestling with for a hundred years, right? Jesus turns water into wine. It would make for better preaching fodder in the Bible Belt South if Jesus had turned wine into palatable water. But that is not what he does in our passage. He does what he does with direct intent. Now I want to say about this passage that uh, like other passages that make certain observations about the consumption of alcohol, that that is not necessarily the celebration of or advocating for the consumption of alcohol. And it seems that virtually every conversation that I ever find myself in about someone who sets out to consume alcohol, even in moderation, it ends up in disaster. You, you would be surprised perhaps to know how many counseling sessions begin with we were having drinks, and it goes downhill from there. So there's a word of caution for you here on the front end, right? That wisdom dictates that if you don't ever bring fire in the house, it will, it will have no potential to burn your house down, right? So let's get that clear on the front end. And now let's make some observations here about Jesus and this first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Chapter 2 and verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman, Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. In other words, the time for me to reveal myself as I am is not yet. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. In other words, his mama did what most mamas do, and she dismissed his objections and said, do what he says do. Then verse 6, the Bible says, now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification, that for them to wash, to cleanse themselves according to Jewish rite. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief servant. And they did. And when the chief servant tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first. Then after people have drunk freely, the inferior, but you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus performed this first sign in Cana of Galilee. He displayed his glory and his disciples believed in him. 
So Jesus not only turns the water into wine, Jesus turns the water into the finest wine available. The observation that's made by the crowd is that typically they put the best wine out first because by the time you've had a glass or two, you're unaware of the poor quality of the wine that you might drink later in the festivities, right? But Jesus has provided for them the best of drink. It's a a creation miracle is what it boils down to. And many of these signs in the Gospel of John are creation miracles. Now, there are a number of attributes or abilities that might have been assigned to the gods that were observed or worshipped or paid some homage to in the first century. Within the Greco-Roman world, there was a pantheon of gods, and they had a variety of powers. But it seems that creative power The power to create from nothing was an attribute or an ability somewhat unique to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so in order to seal in the minds of those before him, in in order to cement the divinity of Jesus in the hearts of those who would observe the miracles of Jesus, he often works with creative power, taking something and fashioning something else from it, or in certain instances, creating something from nothing at all. Here it is that Jesus turns water into wine, and probably not the best of water, given that it was only there for purification purposes, and he turns it into the best of wine, demonstrating his creative power. Even before the I am's of the Gospel of John roll off the lips of Jesus, it is clear here in the Gospel that he is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Chapter 4, verses 46 through 54 provide us with the second example of Jesus' signs or miracles. Chapter 4, verse 46, the Bible says he went again to Cana of Galilee where he turned the water into wine. He's back in the same spot. There was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son, for he was about to die. Jesus told him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Sir, the official said to him, come down before my boy dies. Go, Jesus told him, your son will live. The man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. While he was still going down, his slaves met him, uh, saying that his boy was alive. He asked them at what time he got better. Yesterday at seven in the morning, the fever left him, they answered. And the father realized that this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. What we see of Jesus, we've seen the creative power of Jesus at work in Cana already in turning water into wine, but here the healing power of Jesus is brought to bear. And there's something of a distinction between those two powers in all of the gospel accounts. There are times when Jesus works in creation, that is, he works in elements. He works in material things, but things that are not flesh, things that are not people. And then there are those special instances when Jesus in his great mercy works to bring healing or vision or even life into the flesh and blood bodies of those who entrust themselves to him. This official had observed perhaps or at least heard of Jesus' miracle power in turning water into wine at that, can- in that, at that wedding in Cana of Galilee and now believes Jesus to be a source of healing for his son on the brink of death. Now, 
there's mercy in what Jesus does here and, and that there seems to be, at least it communicates as though there's a measure of frustration in what Jesus says in verse 48. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, it's impossible for us to know the tone with which that was spoken. Maybe Jesus was on some level commending him for observing the miracle that had been worked in Cana in time past and realizing that he indeed was a source of power and of mercy. But there are clearly instances in Jesus' ministry when there is a level of frustration that the people will not believe except they see signs and wonders and in many instances won't believe in spite of the fact that they have seen signs and wonders. There are times, there are times, and I, even today I heard a powerful and sweet testimony of God working in some very unusual ways. Sometimes God accommodates our weakness and our foolishness to reveal himself to us in, in special ways. Like it's never advisable when you're praying through a particular issue to say, Lord, if you'll do this, then I'll do this. But there are times when in our immaturity we make certain statements or we pray in a specific way and God perhaps recognizing our weakness and our foolishness, accommodating that in his great grace is pleased to work in whatever way has been prescribed. He does just that in the example of this official. He makes a decree that his son will be made well and upon arriving home he discovers that the boy at the very hour Jesus spoke was indeed made well. We see the healing power and mercy of Jesus. The third sign or miracle is in chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. It's kind of a strange episode here. The Bible says, beginning in verse number 1, after this, a Jewish festival took place and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the sheep gate in Jerusalem, a large number of the sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed, Waiting for the moving of the water because an angel would go down into the pool from time to time and stir up the water. The first one who got in after the water was stirred up, recovered from whatever ailment he had. Now, I think, I think that what is being described there is just a myth. That, that the idea of an angel coming and stirring the pool of Bethesda so that the first person that gets in is healed is, is just legend around Jerusalem. And so this becomes a place to gather for those who are sick in some kind of way. Jesus never says anything that would suggest that he affirms this legend or idea that there's some healing power in this water. And it seems out of step with the way that God works. God does not work in magic God does not work in incantations. God does not work for those who can get to the water first. God doesn't work in the miracle water that the health and wealth and prosperity gospel preacher sells late at night on television. God does not work in prayer cloths that are hawked by the Benny Hens of this world. God just doesn't seem to work in that way, and I'm thankful that he doesn't. It says something for his character. But there seems to be a legend attached to the pool of Bethesda that says, when the water stirs, if you get in first, you're going to be all right. Now, the problem with that arises in verse 5. One man was there who had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Sir, the sick man answered, I don't have a man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred, but while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Do you see the absence of mercy in the legend that would lead me to believe that it's just a legend, a legend, a myth is just what it is? In verse 8, Jesus said, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat and started 
to walk. Now we can look at the remainder of this account. Maybe in your own time you'd like to do that. But I, I want us to note together that what we are to learn from this sign, what we're being trained to understand about God, is that God helps those who cannot help themselves. Here this man is, by his belief, according to the myth that's attached to the pool of Bethesda, confined to his paralysis for the rest of his life. He can't beat the able-bodied people to the water when it stirs, and so he'll always be in this sickly state. Jesus looks upon the one who can... I think it's important that we get this, because there's some research that shows that a substantial number of Americans believe that God helps those who help themselves is in the Bible. When it's actually the exact opposite. Do you know why God helped you? Do you know why God shows up in your life and does the gracious things he does? Because you can't help yourself. And the only thing that convinces us that we have the means or maturity or wisdom or strength or ability to do something for ourselves is because of pride in our heart. We are helpless and hopeless apart from Jesus' work in our life. And so Jesus picks the most helpless and the most hopeless at the pool of Bethesda to intervene in his life in a way that he doesn't understand. If you read further in this account, he, he doesn't know right then what's going on. He just takes his mat. Jesus doesn't say anything about who he is, about why he did what he did. He just takes his mat and he goes traipsing off with no idea about who this man is. It's only later that Jesus finds him in the temple complex and says to him, see you are well. Don't sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. This man just got healed. He has no idea the source of his healing until this later encounter with Jesus. The fourth miracle in the Gospel of John is the only miracle in Jesus' ministry that occurs in all four Gospels. It's the feeding of the 5,000, and it takes place in chapter 6, verses 5 and following. One of, one of the simplest and most profound and powerful chapters in all of the Bible is John chapter 6. And in in verse 1, we're told that Jesus crossed over the Sea of Galilee, and there's a huge crowd that's gathering to him. And uh, this is going to present a problem for Jesus because they're eventually going to get hungry, and they're not in proximity to a place to be able to feed all of these people. Verse 10 says, have the people sit down, and there was plenty of grass in that place. They're out on the plains. The men numbered 5,000, and there's been a lot of talk about what that indicates if it's just 5,000 males or 5,000 people all together. I don't know the answer to that question, but I don't know that I'd be any more impressed if there were 25,000. If you've got two fish and five loaves and you feed 5,000, I'm blown away with that. That's enough for me, right? But maybe there were 10,000 or 12,000 or 14,000 when you count women and children who would have been there in the company of, of those men, those husbands and those fathers. Verse 11 says that Jesus took the loaves and after giving thanks, his, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also with the fish as much as they wanted. When they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. Jesus provided for the needs of his people. 
And a spoiler alert here is not all of the people numbered in that 5,000 were really his people in a saving way. In fact, he scatters the vast majority of that group by the time you get to the end of chapter 6. The interesting thing about Jesus in his ministry is that every time the group gets big, he begins the process of pruning down. They like the bread and the fish. They appreciate the way he's provided. But later in John 6, Jesus will say in a way that was not acceptable for those who were listening, if you want salvation, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And they said, we don't know about all this. And they left. He eventually turns to the disciples in one of my favorite exchanges between Peter and Jesus and says, don't you want to leave too? It's a rare moment of brilliance for Peter. And he just says, we don't have anywhere else to go. That's a pretty good place to be when you don't have anywhere else to go except at Jesus' side. This is another of those creative miracles in Jesus' ministry where he's making something from nothing. And he's, just, he's not just spreading thin bread and fish. He didn't just water down the flour, right? Jesus is quite literally making something from nothing. The creative power of Jesus is yet again on display here, helping us to understand and to celebrate his power to meet the needs of his people, even if that requires making something out of nothing. Now, if you've been walking with Jesus for any time, and you've been faithful in some areas of your life, I, I always, my mind tends to go to financial things because it's tangible. There's, there's, there's math behind God's provision when it comes to financial provision. And in the early years of our married life together, we were so broke, we were hungry. I hear people talk about being poor. You can't be poor with an iPhone and a belly, right? When, like when you get hungry and your bones start showing, then you poor, right? That's how it works. And we were, we were there, right? We were there. And, and the way God was so faithful to provide for our needs, I, I, could, I could just talk you through some of those episodes. And from time to time, we get on those conversations at home. And it is remarkable the way the Lord provides. Even within the context of the church, when there's been a collective effort to reach some goal or to do something that we're convinced God has called us to do, the way he provides... It's no less than, than making something from nothing. Now, I want you to think, this, just stop for a minute, because I know how you read the Bible. You read the Bible like I do in this disconnected kind of way sometimes. We start, we, we're trained to read and to gather information and to understand things. And for a whole lot of us, we've trained ourselves to read so that we're able to tell others, so that we understand Bible trivia. We've got all the information in the background, and we know something somebody else doesn't know. There's a certain pride about our study. But if you'll slow down, if you'll pace yourself such that you're able to appreciate that there was a very real moment and time in history when on the plains of Galilee, of a man of flesh and blood like yours and like mine, seated on the plains, 5,000 people, and with two little fish. We're not even talking about big fish. We're talking about two little fish. And five, think about that. Even us old crusty Baptist, if you'll think about Jesus turning water into wine. What if someone rolled into this, to this lobby tonight and they, and they brought out some substance and they, in, a, in an instant, turned it into something else? 
Like we'd be impressed. We'd be amazed with that. Something altogether different than it was before. We'd be looking for the sleight of hand. We'd be looking for, for how he was able to pull it off. What's the trick? What's the backstory? Who's in the back? Refilling and unfilling and all of those sorts of things. Convincing us of this thing that's just happened before our eyes. But we know to be an impossibility. Jesus has miracle power. And he is often pleased to exercise that miracle power in the lives of his people, especially to meet the needs that arise within our experience. (laughs) Later in chapter 6, verses 16 through 21, Jesus walks on water. The Bible says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus hadn't come to them, had not yet come to them. Then a high wind arose, and the sea began to churn. And after they had rowed about three or four miles, about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Jesus was not just walking in the edge of the water, right? They had rowed three or four miles, and here comes Jesus walking on the waves. Now, there there are, we've talked about creative miracles where Jesus makes something from nothing or something from some different substance. But here is a miracle that demonstrates that not only does Jesus have creative power, that he is powerful over creation, that wind and wave are under his authority. You see this in episodes recorded like in the Gospel of Mark when he stands in the boat and says, peace be still and the winds die down and the sea is calmed. But here he illustrates this by walking atop water. Now y'all know that is not possible, right? But Jesus does just that, demonstrating his lordship over all creation. I'm always always in a storm, especially when it's an especially powerful storm, reminded of the power of God in heaven. He makes that, right? He, he makes that. Do what it does. And if you can make it do what it does, it must be small in comparison to the fullness of power that he enjoys. I I think I've shared there was a season in my life when I spent some time on a riverboat and we would for short periods of time be on the Mississippi River and and I I can remember looking at that water and there would be 10 or 12 currents from one side to the other. Now I didn't know Jesus in those days was the farthest thing from being a Christian but being impressed with that demonstration of power in creation you've made observations you've seen that sort of thing and wind and and wave on the beach and the way it pulls and tugs and you're no match for its power here comes Jesus demonstrating his power even over that walking on the water the sixth miracle is in chapter 9 verses 1 through 7 this is a really insightful miracle in that Jesus provides some explanation as to why he works the way he does. Verse 1, the Bible says, as he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples questioned him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Are y'all following the, the line of questioning here? 
Whose fault is it that this man is the way that he is, that this, that this thing has happened to him the way that he has? And Jesus says in verse 3, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. Jesus answered, This came about so that God's work might be displayed in him. There are times when the suffering that we experience or the hardship, the trials that we go through are not the direct consequence of some sin or transgression on our part, but are provided us for our good and as an opportunity for God to demonstrate his great glory. Now, we don't often know when what is what, right? And there can be confusion and even frustration. And if you're not careful to lean hard into your trust and faith in Jesus, there can even be anger. But we can be confident. We can be confident that God will turn even the trials of our life for his glory as we trust in him. It wasn't his sin. It wasn't his parents' sin. This was provided as an opportunity for this man to be a demonstration of God's great power and grace. Jesus says in verse 4, We must do the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. There's one of those I am statements. He instructs the man after spreading some mud and spit over his eyes that he should go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And indeed he does. And what happens in this man's life, the testimony that he bears in the remainder of this chapter is just extraordinary. Uh, this is another example of someone who is healed and doesn't fully appreciate who it is that has brought healing to his life. The fact that he's healed gets the Pharisees and the religious officials of the day all riled up. And they eventually call his parents and eventually call him to testify about what Jesus has done. And when he gets before the, the trial, he says, I don't know what y'all are talking about, and I don't know much about this man, but here's what I do know. I once was blind, and now I see. And who can argue with that, right? So you can, work, you can deal with this on, on a religious level, and y'all get all the kinks worked out over here and be angry if you want to. But I know this. There was a time when I was blind, and now I have the ability to see. And the catch was that everybody else knew that he was once blind, and now he had the ability to see. That's a powerful apologetic, by the way. By, by apologetic, that's the term that we'll often use as Christians for defending the faith. Be prepared, Peter said, to give a defense. Always give a defense for, the, for your faith. And the Greek word for defense is apologia. So we talk about apologetics. We're talking about defending the faith. One of the most powerful apologetics is, is our experience of having once been blind, but now possessing the ability to see. Like, you, you can debate with me if you'd like to about evolutionary science. I'm not a scientist. You can debate with me if you'd like to, even about certain theological ideas that may be your area. You can deal with philosophy and various other lines of argumentation against the truth of the gospel. You can have all that. What I know with absolute certainty, what is unquestionable in my experience, is that there was a time in my life when I was dead in sins and trespasses, but I have now been made alive in Christ Jesus. I can identify with this man born blind. I once was blind, but praise God, now I see. And, and there ought to be a demonstration of that in our walk, in our talk, in our experience as we engage with others about the truth and power of the gospel. 
The last miracle, and we're not going to get to the I am statements. Maybe we'll summarize with just a brief address there. But the last miracle of these seven is in chapter 11, verses 1 through 45. In the beginning of John chapter 11, the Bible says um, a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, and it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. It's not often stated plainly, but if you'll begin to pay some attention in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus, Jesus bases the majority of his ministry in Judea out of the city of Bethany. Ordinarily, when Jesus is doing ministry in Jerusalem, he, his base camp is Bethany. And there are times when we don't know for sure like whose house he's at or even that he's specifically in Bethany, but it seems common sense to assume that's where he is because he's moving. Even in the Passion Week, for instance, Jesus is moving back and forth from Bethany and Bethphage, those two little villages two miles outside the city of Jerusalem, into the city. By day, he's in Jerusalem. By night, he's in Bethany and Bethphage. By day, he's in Jerusalem. By night, he's back in Bethany. The assumption is that he is staying at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. There's always this interaction between Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And there seems to be a close friendship that exists between Jesus and Lazarus. The language used for their friendship is relatively unique. Except for John, who is the author of the Gospel of John, the Apostle John, who is referred to as the beloved disciple. This is really the only other individual where this kind of love and devotion is expressed on the part of Jesus and this individual person. The one Jesus loved was sick. In verse 4, the Bible says, When Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. We're back to that John 9 thing. His death is God's instrument to make his glory known. Now, Jesus, in verse 5, loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Now, that's counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense. If you hear that someone is sick, then you, you go, right? But, but because he loved them, he stayed two more days where he was. And after that, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea and the disciples. They do not want to go to Jerusalem because by now people in Jerusalem want to kill Jesus. And because they are with Jesus, there is at least some likelihood that they will want to kill them too. So there's a bit of an argument on the part of the disciples. Let's not go to Jerusalem. But Jesus insists. In fact, he says in verse 14, Lazarus has died, and I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. In verse 17, the Bible says when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to, Mar to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. Now, when John uses the language of Jews, he uses it a little differently than the other Gospels. By this time, and this is a later Gospel, by this time Jews kind of becomes the catch-all term for the religious authorities, those that by nature oppose the things of Jesus. And there were a lot of those kinds of folks out in Bethany. They'd come to encourage, to pay their respect to Mary and to Martha. But when Jesus gets there, he says, 
your brother will rise again. Martha responds in verse 24, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But Jesus clarifies in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, ever. Do you believe this? Now that's an incredibly important question. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And if you believe in me, listen, if you believe in me, you will never die. Do you believe this? I'm not reading anymore. That's a real question. Do you believe this? And, and, then, and then Jesus works the miracle in just a moment, which is, for me, one of my favorite miracles, and it's really impressive, even more so than feeding 5,000 on the plains of Galilee. Jesus, something about the reason Jesus does miracles is revealed here in John 11 as well. Like he said in John 9, so that the glory of God might be revealed, yes, 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 and yes. That's why God does miracles oftentimes, so that the glory of God might be revealed. But it seems to me the primary function of miracles in the New Testament period was to authenticate or to validate or to verify that the message of the gospel is true. Like, I, I, I do not have trouble believing miracle accounts in frontier places where the gospel is not yet gone and missionaries are advancing light into darkness in places the gospel has not yet been. God has been pleased in history to work in miraculous ways in order to verify the truth of the message. Now, when I hear about that happening down the street, I'm skeptical, right? B because... Typically, there's some financial gain attached to that or at least some personal grab for glory. But the way Jesus operates here is to allow time for the physical, of, physical death of Lazarus to... He waits two days. He waits until everything is in its place and in the fullness of time, he arrives. Promises that he himself is the resurrection and the life, that eternal life is to be found in him, leaves hanging this great question, do you believe this? And then steps to the mouth of the tomb of Lazarus. Four days after his death. Now there's a cultural feature here. It was believed that on the third day, the decomposition of the body began. And so there might be some measure of hope for the day after. Maybe less hope, but still some hope for the second day. But by the third day, there is just no hope. That's the symbolism and that's the significance of Jesus being raised from the grave on the third day. But he ups the ante here in the resurrection of Lazarus. It's the fourth day. And there are even objections from within the crowd that by now his body may stink. And Jesus says, with all of the authority with which he spoke the world into existence, Lazarus, come forth. And do you know what that dead man did? He came forth. This is a, a great picture of our salvation. This is where we were, dead in sins and trespasses. And God decreed over our life, come forth. 
And, and, and that great beautiful picture of Ezekiel where dry bones begin to clink together and flesh and sinew begin to cover that skeleton and dry bones begin to stand and to march forth as a great army. That miracle begins to happen in the experience of people just like me and people just like you when God says to dead and lifeless and dry bones, arise and come forth. Dead and lifeless and dry bones, get up and begin to walk. Lazarus comes ambling out of that tomb, grave clothes still wrapped about his body. And Jesus instructs him, loose him and let him go. Aren't you glad that our God bears this power? Aren't you glad for that? And my encouragement to you, I know we didn't get to half the outline tonight. We didn't deal with any of the I am statements. They're all good and you ought to all go spend some time with them. But my, my, my closing challenge to you is to give some time to considering the power of Jesus. The reality of these, to, 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 don't, don't read them like we do so often. The, these are not the cutesy little things that we read in the picture books for our small children so they can begin to, I get the value of all that. I'm not suggesting it's n not valuable. But this is so much bigger than that. There are very real people and very real personalities involved in Jesus working these miracles. There's very real desperation in the heart of that man at the pool of Bethesda. Very real tears being cried at the side of Lazarus' grave in John chapter 11. A very real once dead man raised from death to life. A very real man born blind in John chapter 9 without sight for all of his life who was granted vision by the power of Jesus. 5,000 very real people on the plains of Galilee who ate very real fish and bread by the power of a very real Savior in Jesus Christ. The miracles are not so much what we ought to be impressed with. It's Jesus that we ought to be impressed with. And the miracles only function to authenticate the truthfulness of what Jesus says and who Jesus is. Do you believe this? Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and for these moments tonight to give consideration to your great power. I pray that you would help us to guard against being a sign-seeking generation, uh, amazed at or enthralled with the miracle or the benefit somehow of following after you. I pray that our amazement, that the attraction for us would always be focused on the face of the one who bled and died for us, the one who holds all power. We thank you that you called our name even in our dead state and raised us to life. God, we pray for those who are yet dead in sins and trespasses that you would decree over dead and dry bones arise and come forth. Be pleased, Father, we pray, to work with great power among us and may Jesus receive all the praise for it. In Christ's name, amen.